Hello, everybody. Hey, Patrick. What's going on, man? Guys, I brought Patrick here because he's the one who basically did all the heavy lifting to get us to inscribe SNES on Bitcoin. And so I wanted to just bring him here. He's an incredible dev, extreme talent in the space, and just wanted to dig into some of the technicals maybe that we could help other people who, who are interested in this. So Patrick, would you want to give a kind of an overview about what you did? The first thing I did was look at what are the options for emulators. And we determined that the SNES 9X was the best one out there. So when I first went to that repo and, and installed it or downloaded it and built it, that was the first thing I saw is this emulator is meant to be a desktop application. It does not have any way to work in a web page. So yeah, then going through the process of what does it take to get this emulator's video output to go to an HTML canvas I don't want to go through that work if it's already been done. So I started looking around and saw that there was a project called Web Retro, which basically they found every emulator in existence for game systems and made this huge project that, you know, was all jammed into one file and, and it was incredibly dense and complex. And so that was my first part of the project was just going through this mess of code and figuring out how does all of this work and i eventually saw okay so they have they built the WebAssembly, or sorry they built the snes 9ax binary and compiled it into or transpiled it really i guess into WebAssembly. and then i dug in further and saw okay they used a popular web assembly tool chain called nscripten and that basically makes it super simple to basically port C++ or C code and know like you're outputting to the speaker, it's going to go to the web audio API. And if you're going to draw, it's going to go to the web canvas or, or use a WebGL. So that tool chain basically did all the crazy stuff that I didn't want to have to do. So I basically ripped that out of that web retro project. And then, then the next challenge was they had all this stuff built in this web retro thing uh, was building something called lib retro which had webcam support and microphone and screenshots and saving games and custom config for a, a game so you could set up however you want this emulator to be and then save that file and obviously in the ordinals world that is not going to work so yeah so that the first problem i was seeing was this emulator, or sorry, the, the build of web retro is expecting a config file to live in a certain place. Um, and if it's not there, it auto generates one and it puts on the screen creating config file and all this stuff that just is gross visually. So I had to, you know, basically figure out wh why is all that happening? What was their big, huge, messy code file doing um, in the first place? If you did have a saved config file, so basically I ended up generating a config file and part of that is the controls. So we also built in a way to customize the keyboard controls mapped to the SNES controllers, or you can use gamepads, which is a way better experience. So yeah, so when the ordinal for the SNES emulator boots up, it's basically having a set of default controls that is being created in this config and giving it to the emulator so that it's, oh, there's my config file that I'm expecting and then it doesn't put a bunch of junk on the screen. Um, and there are, there are a bunch of other little small details in that 
configuration that were not documented um, or at least weren't visible in that web retro repo. So I had to dig into the libretro source code to find what are all of the possible, can this thing is just massive. So yeah, it was a lot of tedious, annoying stuff. And, and the same thing went for the, the controls actually. It has its own label for keys, which you know are not the same label that browsers use. So I had to basically have a translation layer in between there that knew, you know, when you say up arrow in, in the HTML world or the browser world, that's arrow up. And I have to like map that to the text that the emulator is expecting to see. There were a lot of little details. Yeah. It sounds like slightly more of a grueling grind than getting a whitelist spot. So Patrick, um, yeah, could you could you define WebAssembly for everybody and just kind of I want to get people to know what this technology is about and what it can be used for and maybe they can think of some cool things to do with it. Yeah, I mean WebAssembly is has basically just compiling down to you know native processor execution when you're doing C You write a C code and you compile it and then the architecture is basically um, executing that and so it can be super efficient because it's not going through a, a um, translation layer of a higher level language, JavaScript, where uh, like compiling as it's, it's processing the code as it goes. So it's always slower than it would be if it was directly opcodes on the architecture. So WebAssembly is, is basically just that, but for browsers. So depending on what machine you're on, it targets that and it executes the code super duper efficiently and fast. Got it. So basically, you can take any desktop app, and if you have the C++ or Rust or other source code, you can compile it into a format that works in the browser. And then this is obviously really good for games, oh, yeah. right? Makes makes a lot of sense. What work do you have to do after that? Let's say I you know, have some app I want to put into uh, the browser so it can be on an ordinal, and we all use the browser nowadays. Then I need to basically figure out how to communicate between the WebAssembly code and JavaScript yeah. in the browser or user interface or what after you take one of these? I mean, that's kind of a complicated question to answer because, I mean, it's just if you're if you're dealing with C or C++ code already, when you compile that, there are all kinds of things that might not be done in the most efficient way. You know, the compiler does what it does. Compilers are really, really great, but there are always better choices for optimizations on iOS for, or on iPhones, for example, you can do what's called neon intrinsics, which is you're basically doing commands that go directly to the architecture of the phone. And that's really great for high complex tasks. If you're processing audio, for example, you compile some crazy, say you're doing a frequency modulation synthesis. You, you may write this code that does everything right, but when it generates samples and outputs those to the speakers, that could end up being such a intensive task that the the buffer will underrun and you'll have all kinds of pops and clicks. So, and that's a case where not only could you tweak with what does your compiler do, because there are all kinds of optimization flags that you can give to your compiler to make it the most efficient possible, but there are places where you would be like, no, actually we should delegate this directly to that hardware and you use what's called neon intrinsics for that. And that's a whole other thing that's super complicated. Um, but the end result is you would have flawless audio that sounds awesome. So the same thing goes with WebAssembly. You take some existing library and you 
use some tool chain like MScript and um, yeah, it's going to get the job done, but it might get it done in a super inefficient way. WebAssembly, some might argue it's better to really, really understand what you're doing and do bits and pieces, the complicated, complex stuff that could end up being tons of loops that would slow things down. That might be something that you want to write by hand and have the other stuff that you're not so worried about as far as performance goes done by a tool chain. Did that make any sense? I'll try to recap it. It made sense to me. But so basically what you're saying is that, I guess the question is, so you have a C++ source code for any type of app, desktop app that you want to bring onto the web. And again, we said this is really good for for games if you want to put it in the browser. You have, are these tool chains, like, is it kind of Webpack or like NPM or something like this, where it's just like very yeah. easy to use plug and play? Or did people make these custom for a specific yeah. purpose? And then you're saying they're kind of unreliable in terms of a workflow. Or yeah, they just might have unnecessary bloat and they might not do things in the best way possible, which is certainly true for Webpack. Certainly it may it may add a layer of obfuscation that makes things really hard to debug or stuff that, you know. But they are definitely the fastest way to get what you want to do done. It just might not turn out as great as you want it to be. And so are these build tools pretty good then in terms of WebAssembly? Like I'm trying to think of something other than a game that I want to put in the browser. I don't know, Leah, if you can think of something, a desktop app. Let's say I want to put WhatsApp or, you know, Spotify, like desktop app I have in the browser. And I had the C++ source code, which I don't have. But, you know, would one of these build tools work pretty well for that? And then you just got to go and do custom stuff? Yeah, probably. Yeah, it's really about like, you know, how how do these programs start off? What inputs do they require? Those are yeah, and actually going back to your other question when you were saying about the JavaScript. Yeah, there has to be like a sort of like middleman communication layer between like the browser and the WebAssembly because JavaScript, you know, has its own data structures, so to speak, right? And you can't just give these things directly to WebAssembly because it doesn't know what the hell to make of it. So you need something that basically can convert things down into buffers and byte arrays and stuff that. JavaScript doesn't support, I forget what it is, it's 64-bit not floating. There's some difference with the, um, one does 32 bits and one does 64 bits, so you can't just pass big numbers directly to WebAssembly either because the precision gets cut off. So there's there's stuff that you have to worry about. Interesting. And so we talked about like basically you can get a desktop app of the source code, you compile it, and then you can use these build tools to kind of build a translation layer and you got to customize it. And then the final step is getting it to work on ordinals, which is we know ord.io, these guys are, you know, they got strict rules on this site. You know, they're not going to let you do anything you want there on ord.io. So, you know, ord.io, some of the other marketplaces, you know, what what does that look like getting an SNES to work for? Um, it's a lot of DMs to Leonidas saying, how do I do this? And then Leonidas replies, dude, I have no idea. You're the first person trying that. <laughs> That's pretty much Patrick and my conversation for the past six months. But I'm super pumped to see that he achieved it. This is the kind of thing where you keep, you just keep at it and figure it out, right? And I think, you know, hopefully y'all have kind of, you know, narrowed down or, or somewhat conservative enough now that it'll work on most clients long into the future. Yeah. Can I publicly take this as a, as a moment to also just reiterate that I think it's ridiculous that Ordio doesn't let you use local storage. Okay, done. <laughs> this is where it's, Ordinals doesn't have a specification on what the clients can and can't do, right? The Ordinals protocol is you take a store, you take a file, you store it into Bitcoin, and that's just a bunch of 
you know, data that's stored into Bitcoin. And then ultimately that JPEG, you know, is still just a bunch of data. It has to be interpreted in some sort of way. So the clients, the marketplaces, the explorers, the wallets, they're having to say, hey, if this image is a pixel art image that is very tiny, are we going to automatically scale that to fill the the void of the space that's the 400 by 400 pixels that we have for every inscription? Like, there are basically just decisions that it's not, it's not always completely intuitive what to decide, specifically when it comes to security. Um, and I think that's one of the big issues we have around the local storage thing. But also there is this ethos of the state should mostly be kind of related to Bitcoin and you know, it, it's, it's very interesting, right? Casey left it completely up for interpretation and it's sort of up to the many clients and this ecosystem to decide what the answers are to this. And I mean, we are definitely known for being a little bit more strict on some of these things, right? We, we also have more of a problem because we have the upvoting. We have the issue with scammers a little bit more than the average marketplace where they're kind of manually curating which collections would show on their homepage and which, you know, inscriptions people are seeing. We don't, we don't do that, right? We crowdsource things. So we have to be a little more strict on the the moderation of images, the the security kind of issues. We we literally, you know, have scammers constantly trying to upload inscriptions and we have to shoot them down because they want you to, you know, do something and then we have to fix that. And it's actually locked down pretty well now. So unless they figure out some new way, the main way you would scam someone on like an explorer is basically saying, uh, you know, hey, go to this website and we don't allow people to click links off our website, but you can just, you know, copy text and put it in your browser and they'll say, you know, go to this website and then theoretically that could be a drainer. So you got to be super, super careful. There's a gazillion angles to all of this. And, you know, I'm sorry, Patrick, you're a good user who's having to suffer for all of the bad people, right? That's just how the world works, unfortunately. But I'm glad you figured it out, dude. You, you've really persevered seriously. And I know I've been a bit of a pain in the ass. Because this guy probably could have saved you a lot of time, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad you. Well, and also for the record, my 8-bit NES inscription is completely broken on Ord because of your local storage thing. It really makes me sad. Very sad. Yeah, I mean, look, look, <laughs> I sympathize with you. I really do. It's this is why long term we need better custody environments. Yeah, you only get one shot on on prod, right? So, you know, you click deploy. <laughs> yeah, we definitely definitely need better test nets. Also. There's a lot of differences across all different sites. And actually, you know, I had I had a dev friend of mine looking into, there's a thing called scripty solidity, which is how they're a way to encode HTML stuff and into solidity contracts and stuff. And I've been looking at that more, more recently. It'd be interesting to have those guys on the show sometime to talk about it. OpenSea, for example, you could you, you could embed HTML on-chain in the, um, I mean, they do it with off-chain too, right? On OpenSea, you can just put anything off-chain into that little window with the for the NFT. And they do restrict it as well. I'm just not sure what their content policy is in terms of, you know, you can, they don't they will automatically disable anything related to Wallet Connect. Yeah, patches. Go ahead. If you're locking down your local storage, you might be able to like when you notice inscription is trying to access something you don't want it to access to, add a button in there that would open up a window that's sealed off, kind of like how Chrome has the uh, window for your wallet that makes it an isolated situation, so it can't get into your Word I/O local storage, but could still uh, have a way where someone opens a new window and then could engage with that inscription if it's hitting your security policies. Yeah, like this is what Apple does, right? Apple solves this at the user experience level where they, they have this app store that locks everything down pretty hardcore, but they do allow people to, developers can have access to different features of your iPhone, but Apple decided, okay, we are going to allow this stuff, but there's going to be this screen where the user has to opt in to it, right? 
Um, so there are different trade-offs you can make there at the user experience level. And I agree there's there's interesting interesting potential things there. That's a great idea, Patches. Yeah, Leo, man, get on that ASAP. We need that local storage. But Patrick, maybe uh, I guess you could you could talk about for how you solve the local storage thing and maybe you know tell Leo why that's not ideal. But secondly, I'm just curious if you could make some broader comments about the content policies and how you adapted this to work on ordinals and some of the gotchas that other devs should look out for and just some some stuff that you learned. The answer to your first question is incredibly lame. It was wrapping, uh, attempting to access local storage with try catch blocks. So it'll just fail and silently fail on Ord IO and it'll work everywhere else. Um, I don't know that there were any other gotchas uh, pertaining to this emulation. You know, I just had a lot of like question marks because local storage doesn't work, you know, the WebAssembly has its own API, so I was concerned that that was going to be locked down, but apparently it is not. So, yeah, I don't think there are any other uh, content policy-related issues that I can think of at this moment. It is is the local storage just used for the control configuration? Yeah. And then does it run in yeah. memory or something? Yeah, I mean, and it's scoped to the domain that you're on. So, I mean, the idea behind it is if you really hate the default controls <laughs> and you're going to play Super Nintendo on Ord.io, you're going to have to change your controls every single time you want to play a game, which is going to be really, really obnoxious for users. There's a lot of stuff that you took out that doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily relevant to... Well, I mean, um, yeah, the, the story behind that is when I, as I first was approaching all of this, I was, you know, this web retro project works. So I'm going to just remove all of the non-SNES stuff. And uh -huh. and this file, you know, it had billions of things in it. And so I started going down this path and then I was quickly getting so confused because it was so complicated. And I'm there, this is just ridiculous. So I backed out of that approach. And that was when I just said, okay, I'm just taking the the glue code that mscripten generated, taking that and Basically, looking at the web retro, how were they loading the config file? That was the main thing. It expected a config file to exist in a certain location. It was actually being served from their server. So, and if it wasn't there, like I said, it was flashing on the screen, creating config. And that's not cool for what we're doing. Um, so, yeah. So, it was just basically saying what did that original project do to make everything behave properly and then recreating that and i did that in that same file with the inscript and stuff so i just kind of merged some stuff together and, and then the other problem was you know the the snes 9x binary was too big prior to compression and so i had to modify everything so that it would use my inscription join stuff that i had made before so that it knew to fetch a bunch of um, slices of the SNES 9x binary and then uh, merge that together into one single buffer and give that to the code that is creating the emulator instance, basically. Yeah. Cool. So it sounds like there wasn't too many gotchas then in kind of once once you got the thing working, the browser generally, the only main gotcha is kind of local storage, you know, for specifically the site or.io, but otherwise pretty straightforward process, I guess. Yeah, uh, I believe so. Yeah, yeah. Cool. 
Well, Patrick, man, appreciate you coming up here and and sharing the the process with everybody, and you know, educating people a little bit on uh, you know WebAssembly and how it works. And I hope people in the audience will find cool things that they can build and and you know help push the uh, the space forward. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Have a great evening, everybody.